Good evening and welcome back on this Lord's Day with the needed moisture. We have uh, no pressing announcements other than the Lord's Supper is coming up this week and of course the women's eating time and fellowship Thursday, yeah. So we have the call to worship. Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house, and the place where thine honor dwelleth. I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. Let us bow hearts and heads in silent prayer. Let us stand and sing hymn 
Let us pray. Our God and Savior, Lord Jesus Christ above, and precious Holy Spirit of truth and life, we are grateful that we can come this evening, God, to sing praises before you, Lord, to be with the saints, and to worship and honor you publicly, God, without shame and trepidation. Be with us, precious Spirit of truth and courage, God, and that we would gather here, and we would have all distractions casted aside, Lord, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. We have hymn 282. M282.
go ahead and pray the covenant prayer of God's people. We who are your people, gathered by the power of the Spirit, Lord, bought by the blood of Christ Jesus, and brought into the body by covenant, the covenant of grace from eternity past, applied to us in time and space. We are grateful for such a truth and a reality in our lives, God Almighty, for gathering our church together, all the churches across the world, Lord, on the Lord's Day this evening. We pray in particular, Lord, as we are here as your people, we lift up the work and effort of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, that you would be with her committees, that you would strengthen and give them wisdom, we pray, Lord, uh, that they at the General Assembly, at the Presbytery levels, uh, would do their duty before you with faithfulness and perseverance, God, and give them wisdom, we pray, that they would understand where they are and the limitations that they have and the opportunities, perhaps, they have as well, uh, depending on the committee at hand, Lord, and the men involved. We certainly pray and ask and praise you, Lord, and thankful that there is continued unity, more or less, in these committees, that there's not rancoring and public uh, dissent, uh, but there is a sweet uh, unity, a sweet fellowship, a sweet submission, God, that they vote on matters, Lord, uh, that uh, certainly not clearly expounding the word, but by, Lord, wisdom, we try to apply it to the best we can in a situation and have disagreements, God, and they submit to one another. We pray that these things would continue in accordance to your word and they would stand upon what is clear and black and white as we will see this evening in the law of God and apply it appropriately in the situation and the committees and the opportunities and what's before them, God Almighty. We ask in particular, Lord, for the presbyteries of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and their committees that examine the ministers and those men in those committees, Lord. And continue to ask the right questions and ask newer questions as newer problems rise up in our society and influence the church, God, and influence us and the members and the ministers and the, those in training, that they would have the wisdom to see what needs to be asked, what needs to be evaluated, Lord, and what needs to be, uh, God, filtered out from the pulpit. And so, Lord, may they stand firm and may they be encouraged by one another and the members of the church, Lord, the, the people in the pew, they can be a much great encouragement or hindrance to their ministers and the church officers, God. May they be a great encouragement and pray for them, pray for their committees, again, especially for the committee, Lord, to oversee and to deal with credentials and the candidates and the like, God, for the ministry, that they would maintain a pure pulpit and the whole counsel of God to be preached thereby. And godly ministers, Lord, who have strength and the boldness of the apostles and to not waver in all that they do and teach. And God, we also wish to pray especially for the home missions effort of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church at the general assembly level, at the national level, God, and their efforts to coordinate with the presbyteries and local churches, Lord, to establish and, Lord, create new churches, both in the countryside and in the towns and the cities, Lord, and give them wisdom as well to figure out what is the best place and the best time and the best amount of resources and the best fit, Lord. Uh, some Missionaries, some evangelists, as they're called at times, Lord, have uh, special strengths and abilities that other ones do not have that work for different fields and different places, Lord, in this nation that other ones do not have. We ask, Lord, that they would have the wisdom, spirit of truth, that they would pray for such wisdom, that they would enact such wisdom, God, and understand, Lord, that there are different fits, different uh, men in different times and opportunities. We ask, God, that you would be with those men and those who have families, Lord, that you would strengthen them and encourage them. It can be very discouraging to go out to the highways and the byways and to call uh, the world unto you and to call, Lord, not just unbelievers, but also Christians out of faithless and godless churches. 
Lord, that they would have a place to dwell and to be a safe place for Christians, a, a wonderful church that they could start in those places to grow and to nurture the people of God. We ask for continued funding of these efforts, Lord, here in America. Although we make an artificial distinction that's useful between foreign and home missions, uh, the Great Commission just simply says, tell the world, wherever that is, especially in your own backyard, it seems. And so we pray for this effort to continue to grow in America, for the establishment of Orthodox Presbyterian churches faithful to your word. Our gracious God and Savior, we lift up our work situations as well before you, God. As we heard this morning, we are called, Lord, to use the many earthly means for godly ends, and work is one of them, Lord, to save up the funds that we have for not only a rainy day, not only for our children, our children's children, if possible, but also for the work of the ministry of the church, for the equipping of the saints, God, uh, to establish churches and the pastors and the like. And we are thankful that we are blessed to that end and that we are gainfully employed, more or less. And we ask for those who are uh, looking for employment or close to getting one, that you would give them wisdom to figure out what is the best course of action and that they would have a job soon, Lord. And for others, God, that they would have a good income or better income or another type of income, if possible, Lord, so that they can continue, we can all continue to do what we need to do with the monies, which is to support our families, to help the church, and to help one another as best we can. Give us wisdom in this regard, God Almighty, with what we have at work, um, not only work with respect to being paid and outside the home, but work at home, God, where we're not paid and the world doesn't always think of it as work, but it is a job, it is our duty, not only for those at home, especially the wise God, uh, but for the children as well that they would, Lord, eschew and flee from laziness and embrace a good work ethic, God, as well as those who perhaps go too far with too much work and forget there's a time and place for rest and relaxation, as even the saints of old were given in the Old Testament. So, God, we're grateful for the many blessings you've given us, and for work especially, that this would continue in our lives and that uh, the men of the household especially can have gainful employment. We ask that you continue to be with us this evening, God, and that we would Draw nigh unto you through the blood of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Let us rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Tim all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. 
We magnify your name on high, God Almighty, not only on this day, but throughout the week. But thankful, Lord, that we have uh, the peace and prosperity and, uh, Lord, the ability to meet on your day, to have this day off and to worship and to give these tithes and offerings. May they be blessed and give and bless those who have given them, Lord, that they may be able to give more in the future. In your precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going through the book of Corinthians in the afternoon. And Mark in the morning. I covered the entirety of chapter 9, or the vast majority actually, to verse 23. And I want to drill into a few choice verses in these this section here, or pericope as it's called. In particular here, verses 9 and 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, that this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. Let us pray. And so, God above, we're grateful for this word you've given us as you move the Spirit to write these words, pen these words through Paul the Apostle to the church, that is the Presbytery, the collection of churches at Corinth, Lord, and to instruct them, and it seems in a matter of so many basic things to us, but a reminder, God, that they too are sinners. And at the same time, as a warning to us not to fall into the rancor and the pride that they dealt with, Lord. But as we deal, deal with this particular verse, God, may we learn, as Paul taught and assumed here and elsewhere in the Bible, that the law is indeed for us, and that we can learn from the law of God, in particular even from the Old Testament law, not just the Old Testament law, such as the Ten Commandments, which are also part of the New Testament, as a moral guidance for all of us, but also the case laws. Help us to that, to that end, we pray, and to learn and grow thereby. Amen. So, here, Paul appeals to the Old Testament law on oxen. As you recall, in this uh, litany of questions, rhetorical questions here, from verses uh, 4 and onward, where Paul says in various and sundry ways, I have the right to maintain and basically demand payment. I'm working. I'm an apostle. I ought to be fed or paid or somehow get proper recompense. But we know later on, he says, I don't want to do that. I'm, I'm setting aside my right in this matter because of other considerations. And part of his argument that he builds up to this point here, verses 9 to 10, of the general premise that ministers ought to be paid a recompense one way or the other, is he quotes the Old Testament. There, For it is written in the law of Moses, he said in verse 9, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And so I want to go through this and use it as a stepping stone to, to the broader idea of the usefulness of the law of God and how it fits in the Christian life and what place it has for us. So using the law of God is the first point, uh, a broader idea here, as I take from the top down. Using the law of God and understanding the law of God, uh, the first way to understand and use the law of God is to know the distinction between the black letter commandments of God and the commandments behind the commandments, I call it, or by good necessary implication. So the black letter is a language, uh, legal language of that which is clear. I mean, it says, thou shalt not murder. That's the black letter commandment of the word of God. You can't get around it. You can't do the side shuffle. You can't dodge it. It's there. Everyone knows it. 
And people may try to gaslight you and make you think you're crazy, like as we see the world doing right now. Well, it's okay to snuff out a life inside the womb. It's not murder. No, it is. We're not going to have this discussion. If it was a Christian nation, it would be outlawed, and you'd be in prison right now. You don't debate with people like that. But that's not where we are, unfortunately. The point being, black letter is not subjective. We don't let other people tell us what they think is black letter. We know what it is. It's there. It's clear. It's the Ten Commandments. Straightforward. Obvious. And, of course, not only written in the Bible and in Deuteronomy and Exodus, that is, the Ten Commandments is the best example of that, but scattered throughout various quotes and references as well. Quoted by Jesus, quoted by Paul, and written on the hearts of every man, woman, and child in creation. Even without the Bible, they know murder is wrong. Of course, we all know the best example of that is try to murder them. They don't want you killing them. (laughs) The old joke about the atheist and moral relativity, and you say you beat him up and take his wallet. He's not going to like it. Because he lives in God's universe. Now, there are other explicit commands of the Bible, other black letter commandments that are not listed in the Ten Commandments. You ever thought of it that way? They are there. They are clear, like the Ten Commandments. They're explicit and black and white, like the Ten Commandments. Like when Jesus gives his list of sins, honor your father and your mother, and not to murder and the like, but he also says not to defraud. Which of the Ten Commandments actually says the words, thou shalt not defraud? Not a one of them. We've memorized the Ten Commandments. But it's still a sin. It's still a commandment. There's a flip side. Thou shalt, you know, do the right thing and preserve truth and the like and not cheat and steal. And the negative commandment is thou shalt not defraud. That's the word of Jesus. That's black and white. You can't get away from it even though it's not in the Ten Commandments. That is in that listing of one through ten there in Exodus and Deuteronomy. So there are other such things. Paul, for example, says what? If you don't work, you don't eat. Again, that's not one of the things of the Ten Commandments. We're going to talk about the relationship because they are part of the Ten Commandments. But as respect to just reading the Bible passage, Paul says it. You're like, well, I don't see it. Deuteronomy and Exodus. doesn't matter. still one of the black letter commandments of the Word of God that everyone knows. Again, even without the Bible. The pagans and unbelievers and heathens have known for since the dawn of time, you don't work, you're a lazy bum, I'm not going to help you. That's it. So there are many such commandments in the Word of God. Now, that's the black letter commandments. Then I talk about commandments behind commandments or by good necessary implication and the like. And the one way to understand this and get your head wrapped around this is that the Ten Commandments given to the church of old in the Old Testament at Mount Sinai was a summary of God's law. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery as a summary. There are little handles that are easy to grab and remember. And there's much built into each of the commandments is the point. They are very deep and wide. The laws that we know exist, although not in black letter as such, you couldn't find in a number of verses in the Bible saying these things, but we know uh, lying in print. What's that called? Libel, right? Is a sin, not just lying with your mouth, Right? Lying by omission. You did not tell the truth when you should have told the truth. That too is a sin. Lying in your thoughts. Now Jesus thought it was so obvious, he hammered the Pharisees over the head with it. You know, you're playing this game about externality, and Jesus says, I'm also concerned about the heart. And so those Ten Commandments don't list thoughts per se about lying. 
But when it says thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor, it includes lying in your brain, in your mind, in your heart. That's what I mean. The Ten Commandments have depth, and all the sins that we can ever imagine or think of, and all the commandments, right, all the positive side, I use the word positive and negative, uh, are all somewhere in those Ten Commandments. They fit somewhere in that categorization. It's a categorization that God has given us, and it's very helpful, of course, because it's from God, our, our Father, who knows what we need. And so there's a depth that is discovered when we use the various and correct rules for applying the law of God. And the larger catechism of the Westminster tradition, of our tradition, the Presbyterian tradition, it gives it to us in question 99. So I tell you now and then, hey, here's a good Bible verse, here's some good stuff to write down on the back of that black blank piece of page, the back of your Bible. Well, let me tell you, larger catechism question 99 is one of those. And you can look it up, hopefully you can, you have the confession, you can find it online, you can get it on your phone, you can download the confession on your phone and the catechisms. I have it. And it gives you eight rules for the right use of the law of God. I'm not going to go through all eight. It would be a long sermon if I did. I have gone through them through various sermons. I may have to do that again. I think I broke it into four sermons uh, in the past. So I'll cover a few of them. One of them is that one and the same thing, thing meaning sin, that which is forbidden or that which is commanded, which that's the language of the confession. I say positive and negative laws, right? That one and the same thing in diverse respects is required or forbidden in several commandments. So some particular sins and commandments overlap multiple commandments. And defrauding is an excellent example because defrauding is cheating and lying combined. It's cheating and lying combined. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor and thou shalt not steal. You put them together, you get defrauding. See? Jesus said, thou shalt not defraud. He, he says that in the New Testament. Where did he come up with that? Well, he's God. Well, he is God, but he was also man. And as a man, he was speaking to men, and he was using the logic that God has given all of us, the common sense and the principles of the Bible that we can learn from. And this is one of them, our forefathers, not just our forefathers, it predates them as well, the Puritans, in these principles of applying the law of God. So you can combine several commandments to get various Sins or things that are required, that which is required or that which is forbidden. Uh, number four, that as where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden. Right? The duty to honor your parents is a commandment. The contrary, dishonoring your parents, this hating your parents, undermining your parents is forbidden by implication, even though the Fifth commandment doesn't say it explicitly. You get it from the rest of the Bible. Because there's lots of other commandments, like in Proverbs, to honor your parents. On the flip side, it says, if you don't honor your parents, and God will curse you, the birds will gouge out your eyes, kind of a thing. It's one of the passages there. And where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. Again, this is commonsensical. We kind of understand this makes sense. Thou shalt not murder also implies thou shalt preserve life. Thou shalt not lie or bear false witness implies you should tell the truth. Both of those are built into each of those commandments. There's a positive and a negative side to every commandment. And then number six, so three, four, and six, that under one sin or duty, so that which is forbidden or that which is required, all of the same kind are forbidden or commanded, together with all the causes, means, occasions, appearances thereof, and provocations thereunto. You heard me quote that a number of times. The first part there, under one sin or duty, all of the same kind of forbidden or commanded. And so 
we have thou shalt not commit adultery, but other kinds of sins similar to adultery or what? Fornication. We're also going to put that sin. <laughs> it fits under that commandment. And variations of it, like pornography. Now, my favorite part of number six, that's why I highlighted it, is together, so all of the same kind of things of sins or the same kinds of commands are built into that one particular command. Together with all the causes and means, occasions, appearances, and provocations thereunto. And so, the command to work given by Paul, right? If you don't work, you don't eat. What's the flip side of that? You must work. Right? The negative and the positive, thou shalt work. What Paul's saying, thou shalt work. is implied in the sixth commandment. Because the sixth commandment is about what? Preserving life. So that's one of the kinds of that commandment. And also there are means, causes, occasions that help preserve the life by the commandment to work, not just work itself. So Paul didn't, Paul could have derived from the sixth commandment, thou shalt work, because he knows if you don't work, you're gonna die. You can't get food. You can't provide for your family and get shelter, etc. But we have that as explicit, so I'll just take that as a given. There it is. Paul says it's a black, black and white, it's a black letter law. But there are implications behind it. Thou shalt work, but also thou shalt get enough sleep so you shall work. Thou shalt avoid the conditions and causes and occasions that get you sick so you get sick, and then you have to miss work. So you've got two things already going on there, avoiding sick and getting good sleep. Thou shalt eat so that you have a right mind and have no distractions so you can work well as unto the Lord. See that third one? And there's a fourth one. Get ready for work, the clothing and the hygiene. You see that? It's a trail of cause and effects that work their way and reinforce the commandment. That's what's going on. And that's why it's a very powerful tool and a hermeneutic, actually, of applying the law of God that deals with many social problems that could be cut off at the knees in society if we had this way of thinking in the churches, let alone in society itself and amongst our leaders. Now, of course, to one degree or another, some causes and means are more relevant than others. And, of course, in the case of work, some of us can have less sleep than others. And when you're younger, you young folk, maybe don't get much sleep at all, and you can do just fine. Okay, that's good. So I'm not trying to tell you there's only one way to do it, but I'm giving you a good example that we all know intuitively you got to use the means and causes and occasions and even provocations. I like that word. Because you can provoke unto righteousness as well. That's used in the Bible. To poke people in a good sense of the word, not the bad sense like you always did to your sibling. But the good sense of do right, keep doing right, keep it up. This is the right way of honoring God. And so the more details we get, the further down we drill into, like in the case of a job and working and getting ready for work and hygiene and whatever else, uh, often there's more freedom and the church isn't going to really bear down on you because you forgot to do some hygiene product or whatever. But just as a reminder that we do it intuitively. We know we have to take whatever occasion and provocations and tools to get the job done. In this, this case, the moral job of working or the moral job of preserving life and everything else. And so with these tools, we go to the Old Testament laws to learn from them. So point two, that was all point one. Point two, using the law of God in the Old Testament. And to do that, we have to understand the Old Testament law, how it's broken up into three traditional parts. The moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. The moral law, we already know, that is the Ten Commandments, the black letter commandments of Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus. 
body upon all mankind. Everybody. They don't have to be a Christian. It is binding upon them. That's why I have absolutely no problem, as we talked about this morning, having Sabbath laws. Oh, no, well, the other guys aren't Christians, and they have to have Sunday off. Oh, isn't that terrible? They don't have to work. (laughs) It was that way for a few hundred years in America, let alone the West. Because it's binding on them anyways. They're not Christians, so they can murder, right? You really, no one really believes that. And so there's not much of an argument there. So sinner and saint alike, to binding upon the, both the body and the soul. I don't want to go too much into that. I think we all understand this, uh, that it's not just adultery by action, but by heart as well, and all the other sins. The Pharisees like to play dodgeball with that. Ceremonial law. This is the other law of the Old Testament. In fact, we have a ceremonial law of the New Testament. You may not be aware of it. The Lord's Supper and baptism. You're not having any more baptisms in heaven. It's temporary. It's an element of public worship. It's an element of worship. It has, it's a ceremony in the sense of it does point to the work of Christ already accomplished and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, right? Baptism signifies these things. The Lord's Supper signifies the, the death of Christ. So it has that meaning. It points to Christ. And that's what the ceremonies of the Old Testament did, right? The altar, the priest, the temple, they all pointed forward. Ours points backwards, and to some extent even forward, like the Lord's Supper, as we have the Mary's Supper of the Lamb, that has a forward-looking aspect. But they're both ceremonial. So let's not just think, well, the, the Jews only had all that crazy ceremony stuff. We have it. It's just trunk, truncated. It's streamlined. It is simplified. The Puritans talked about simplified or simple worship. It's not all about having uh, all this fancy stuff going on here. And so the ceremonial laws were there for their worship commandments. They are worship commandments. And even the strangers, in fact, if you look at the laws back in the Old Testament, had to follow some of those ceremonial laws, even though they weren't Jews properly speaking, right? Well, you can look it up. I'll find it for you if you don't believe me. And those commandments are not binding upon the rest of the world in the sense of they would never know about these particular altars or uh, the priests and the like unless they were told. Because it's not written in nature the way the law, the Ten Commandments are written on their heart. That's what I mean. You have to have special revelation to know which sacrifices are acceptable before God. To worship God, yes, they must. How? They don't know. They have to come to him. Now, the case laws, right? These, that is, the civil laws, excuse me, the civil laws, the category, that is the laws with respect to Israel as a nation. And by nation, I do not mean only and uniquely a unique special nation that has a unique relationship with God Almighty, although they are that as well. But I mean as a nation among the nations. What we call their embedded in natural law. It's called the light of nature in the confession. Historically, reformers also use the language the light of uh, natural law. Excuse me. And so what we have in particular what are called the case laws of the civil laws of the Old Testament. And these are the ones that we're more familiar with. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. If you kidnap, you shall die. If you murder, you shall die. And so the case laws are the laws given by detailed scenarios. If something happens in particular, the, some of the more detailed ones we know of, if the ox, excuse me, the axe handle, the head flies off and hits somebody, if there's an accidental murder, and there's ways of dealing with this by these case laws. Given a, a particular case, what do you do now? And what's the punishment for this particular crime? 
They often use the if-then formula. If a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel and mistreats them or sells them, then that kidnapper shall die, it says in Deuteronomy. We're going over Deuteronomy on Wednesday nights. Now, for the use of the case laws, we see, of course, Paul using it here in verse 9 and applying it in verse 10 to the church of God. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it the ox God's concerned about? See his question there? The answer is obvious. No, not in the sense of only concerned about. God was obviously concerned about that he put it in the law. That's not Paul's point. Paul's saying it's not merely and only the ox that he's concerned about, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, Paul argues, no doubt, that it is written. He's arguing what they call logic a fortiori, from the lesser to the greater. If God's concerned about dumb animals, how much more is he concerned about humans who have more value than an animal? That's the logic. And that's a good way of reasoning from the Old Testament case laws, in fact. Although I will not be going through a whole litany of that at all, in fact. Uh, you just have to be in suspense, unfortunately. There are obviously applicable laws, case laws even, of the Old Testament. Uh, I think kidnapping is a good one in the sense of kidnapping is wrong. It's listed here as a wrong thing to do. Murder is a wrong thing to do. Lying and stealing, these are wrong things to do. These are laws that the Jews of old have, and I don't think any of us should ever argue. I don't doubt someone would argue this. Uh, well, it just happens to be, it looked the same as our laws, but it really isn't. It's a special law only for the Jews. It is not. And in fact, a number of the case laws look very similar to their neighboring nations. If you look into the ancient Near East archaeology, which I'm sure all of you have a book on that. Um, but I have books on it. You've probably heard this before. I know Dr. Kopp has covered this. And it's really interesting, and it reminds you that, again, the law of God is written on the heart of every man, woman, and child. And they know enough to put it out and chisel it out, as they did of old, and there it is. These, they have the very similar laws in a lot of cases. Now, there are less obvious laws that apply today. The biggest debate is over applying them, it seems to me, to the extent that you think they're binding. Other laws are not, uh, such as the Leverite law, you've got to marry your um, brother's wife if the brother dies. It's not binding anymore. That's in Deuteronomy. So you have the case law on thievery. And what's the, what's the punishment for thievery? Remember? This was Sunday school class. I have you raise your hands. Restitution. I like that one. I think that's very good. It's very commonsensical. You steal my money, give it back, plus whatever I lost, I could have gained from it. If I lost it for a year, I lost a lot of money for a year. I could, what could I have done with that money for a year? Interest rates, whatever else. So restitution, was it three or four times? But what about Bernie Madoff? Anybody remember him? The Ponzi scheme? And what did he get away with? Oh, they estimate about $60 billion. Now let me ask you, how would you apply the Old Testament case law to someone who doesn't have $60 billion? Let alone three or four times the amount of $60 billion. And so you see already that what you have with the case laws is that God, in his infinite wisdom, gave them the scenarios that worked for their condition in this world. They weren't going to be running around with $60 billion Ponzi schemes in the Old Testament. And so the punishment fit the crime given those circumstances. Does that make sense? I hope it does, because people have a confusion about this. You have um, our theonomic brothers, on the one hand, saying it's got to be exactly, the penology is the technical term, the exact punishment they had in the Old Testament today, always, at all times. Oh, you believe in moral relativism. 
What? We, we don't have a problem with the fifth commandment when it comes to parents applying the law of preserving life and the kid, they tell their kids you can't have that much Twinkies during the day. That's what they're doing. But it's different per family, isn't it? Some kids are predisposed to having problems with diabetes, like me. And so you give them less candy. Other ones, not so much. So it is circumstantial, isn't it? And yet still morally absolute. We don't have a problem with that. We do it with cursing. Cursing's wrong. But the cursing words we have in English are different than the words in Japanese. Is that moral relativism? No, it's not. So don't let that kind of rhetoric throw you for a loop. And I don't have an answer for the Madoff Ponzi scheme. <laughs> I'm just telling you, it's not that obvious. That you just go, oh, look, this is great. I agree, it is a good law. Restitution, on average, is a good thing. It really makes people think, as opposed to throwing them in jail. I'm like, great, I'm glad you threw them in jail. Now what? What, what do I get out of it? And what do they get out of it? What are they, but their poor family. They don't have a father who can work anymore. So I think there's legitimate debates on the details. But I hope there's no debates on that it is wrong <laughs> to have Ponzi schemes to defraud and to steal. And so using the law of God today is the third point. Using the law of God today. God's law today, unfortunately, outside of what we already have established on our American history, which has a lot of Christian influence. You, I went over that in Sunday school class a number of years ago. You're probably familiar with that in general anyways. And so murder is still on the books, praise the Lord. Uh, thievery is still on the books, praise the Lord. But there are other problems that we have uh, that I think we could have a better way of doing things, better laws in many regards. And unfortunately, a lot of that is academic to some degree. Now, God is shaking things, shaking things up, of course, with Roe v. Wade thrown out the window. That's no longer academic. That's great. But I think a lot of these things, unfortunately, end up being academic because we just don't have a lot of influence and power. But the debate could still be there and helpful when it does. time does come. So it's more practical in our families and our smaller circles and our churches and maybe our communities. And so our friends and family, of course, follow God's law and rules whenever and however we can. Don't lie, cheat, or steal, or murder. And I think I don't think that's especially a problem for all of you. I haven't heard about any of you being caught with murdering somebody. Which is to say you can do it. I know you, you hear, we, we're Calvinists, we live in total depravity, and so I'm just always struggling. But you're not murdering people. God has worked and preserved in you. So that you are having the first steps of obedience. Not perfect, I know. Yeah, I'm sure you've been angry in your heart, but you're not literally murdering people. That's a good thing. So you can fulfill these things to some degree, a sufficient degree, that I can look at you and say, praise God, he's working in you. And so... The positive laws, not just the negative laws, of course, are still requ- are required. The positive law, that is, not just don't lie, cheat, or steal, but preserve life, preserve property, preserve the truth. Right? Those are all the flip sides. How that's done in your family and your friend circles may be a little different. Like I said, how much you eat, you sleep, the shelter you have, the job that you can get. A lot of freedom in these regards, but you're doing it all because of the positive part. That's you preserving life, that's you preserving truth, and the like in your life. Keep it up. Keep doing it. Nothing fancy is required. And then simply keep doing what you do to preserve your family and your friends under God's rules and commands by his grace. To do your job living in his world. Now, practically in the church, here in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul, of course, just turns around, takes a civil law, oxen. Wouldn't go to the church courts. Don't forget, there were church courts that were separate from the Court of the king in the Old Testament, Second Chronicles 19. They would go to the king's court. 
to deal with its oxen problem. In the case of the oxen, of course, it's not a punishment per se, it's just saying take care of your animals. He gets to eat while he's treading out the corn and breaking up the husks so you can get the goodies on the inside. Feed that dumb thing. And Paul says, if that's true in everyday life, how much more true is it here in the church? Because he's, he believes the church is no, not, not something unique and different from natural law. We follow natural law on top of being saved and have God's spiritual law in the sense of our heart and the truths of preaching and the like you heard this morning. So the pastors are more important than ox. I hope you believe that. And therefore should be paid. That's the long and short of it. One more argument of him uh, from Paul. Stealing and the like, of course, should still be punished by the church. We don't say, well, you know, it's just a natural law problem, it's just a civil problem, and the police will take care of you. No, we ought to take care of you too. You get a double whammy in the church, sorry. You get the, the state coming after you, you get the church coming after you. Adultery, abuse, and things like that. The police ought to be involved. And there are churches, unfortunately, who don't play that game. They kind of go the other way and keep everything inside the church. Oh, no. If it's a crime, the police ought to know about it. Don't go running to, 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 to me. <laughs> I'm just going to call the cops, okay? People do that. I read about it. It's terrible. They do it in the name of being conservative. It's not conservative. Conservative says you're in trouble in both domains because it's a public crime. And the church deals with public things. The church is not a private institution. Don't forget that. It's public. So, Paul argues of the animals, care for the ox, how much more for the humans, specifically the humans called pastors, and I think we can argue in a similar manner, if murder of the body is wrong, how much more murdering of the soul? And so churches ought to take seriously false doctrine, teachings and lies that kill the soul, heresies and cults. It's hard to do that because we live in a pluralistic society that says every man for themselves when it comes to church and comes to truth and it's hard to grow a church when you're standing upon the truth because you're surrounded by a bunch of people who believe lies. But you've got to warn them and warn your own members against them. The logic is simple. Paul uses all fortiori from the lesser to the greater. Dumb animals, dignified humans. Your body, your soul. It's kind of important, last I checked. I think that's a clear application here of this text and of Paul's reasoning for the church to defend you, against soul-destroying doctrines. That's their job. God's law still applies today, brothers and sisters. Paul showed us the way. We may dis- disagree, of course, exactly how it applies. As I mentioned, <laughs> $60 billion Ponzi schemes. But we must learn, nevertheless, the law of God and use these tools the best we can and pray our leaders, that is, in the church especially, but not only there, would have the wisdom of the Spirit to apply those laws to where we are in life. The most obvious commandments are already there. We're already doing them, brothers and sisters. You go to church. You work hard as unto the Lord. You take care of one another, and you pray for one another, and all the like. Keep it up. Stand firm and keep God's law by His grace, not because you are saving yourself, but because you already are saved. And you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, brothers and sisters. And know that any shortfallings and shortcomings are covered by his blood. Let us pray. We are grateful, God Almighty, for your your word. And here, the good example, godly example of Paul the Apostle applying the Old Testament Deuteronomic Code to the church. 
Certainly, Lord, he would believe, as he argued by the other passages before, it's common sense for society. That you, he who plants a vineyard, he should eat of its fruit. Our God and Savior, help us, Lord, to have and to revive this common sense approach to the law of God. For your glorious name's sake we pray. Amen. Let us stand and sing Psalm 119, appropriate, a psalm on the law of God, 119D. of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.